welcome to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast, where storytellers have a chance to bite it live. These stories were recorded in front of a live audience on February 2nd, 2019 at Provincetown Theatre in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. The theme was, It's Complicated. All right, so please give a warm welcome to this person. It is difficult going first, but as you can see, this is a very friendly, warm environment. David Hale. Yes. All right, so my name's Dave. Uh, I've lived here in Provincetown year-round for the last, uh, since 2003. And before I lived here, um, uh, well, in 2002, my wife and I quit our jobs, traveled around the country. Um, so that was like 20 years ago. Uh, prior to this, by the way, I, well, now I, um, I get confused sometimes. It is complicated, isn't it? But now I drive arts dune tours and I take people out on kayak trips. But prior to that, I had been chief financial officer for a uh, hospital. And I decided, and, well, I'm a very planful person. So when I turned 40 in 2002, I quit my job, traveled around the country. We packed up our Ford Explorer. We put our little two-person tent in it. We went every place for 210 nights, days, we spent 194 in our little tent. And it was amazing. We went to Florida to start, and by the way, we did start on April 15th, tax day. Uh, it was a little appropriate for me at the time. Uh, we traveled and traveled and traveled. We had an amazing time. But there was one time, middle of July or August, we're going across the desert in Colorado. Colorado National Monument. If you've never seen it, very infrequent national park. And it was amazing. But we got there, and it was 99, 101 degrees. And we're up on this mesa above a town. And we, nobody is in this place. I mean, no one. There isn't a campsite filled. We pick our spot. We sit out there. It started to rain. I sat there with beer, sitting in the rain, in the afternoon going, oh my god, this is the most fantastic thing I've ever done. <laughs> Ten minutes later, a van pulls up next to us with drunken Germans <laughs> singing drinking German beer songs and proceeding to go crazy. I looked at my wife, I said, this is so crazy. I can't believe this. There are 50 sites open along this thing. <laughs> they parked right next to us. So I walked over and I said, you know, I, it's, it, it's not like me. And I said, really? <laughs> the guy looks at me in, in this German accent and says, well, it's a nice sight. <laughs> I said, dude, come on. This. Went back. We packed up our truck. We moved down the way so we have another place. The ranger comes by. There's only one ranger here, by the way. He's got his shotgun in the, uh, in, the, in, in the truck and everything else, and he looks at us, and I said, I'm sorry, but we had to move our site. He said, uh, don't worry. And uh, I explained it to him. He said, oh, my God. He goes, some people, you know, they just don't know. Night falls. We're looking out. We're all gazing out over these things, uh, this beautiful skyline. It's amazing. And the lights are shining down below in this little town off to the distance. The Germans are 300 yards away. We're over this way. But there's one common bathroom, so I go in to brush my teeth before. I walk in, the two, German two of the German guys are sitting there brushing their teeth. I walk in, I look at them. Okay. I go into the, the stall, I, you know, do my thing, I pee. Then I walk back out and brush my teeth, and one of them's moved away. So I said, and I'm giving him the eye at this point. I'm like, I'm being the tough guy. I am being the tough guy. Take up my tube, I put on, right on the brush, I start brushing. I look down, it's preparation H. <laughs> Swear to God. In my 
best tough guy routine, I go like this, spit it out, brush, turn around, walk up. That's my story. Welcome to the stage, our second storyteller, Michelle. Michelle. Okay, so 11 years ago, I was living in Boston and I was a therapist. And one morning I had to testify against a Catholic priest in a molestation trial. And obviously that was a really stressful day. So I had asked my girlfriend to plan something for us to do at night that would be relaxing and beautiful and calm. And um, she didn't drive. And so what I would do, because I didn't want to be in charge of everything in our relationship because I could drive, I would say, anywhere you want to go, you tell me. And I'll turn left and I'll turn right. And you tell me, just stay straight. So I finished the trial. And I head up to her house. And we're driving to the North Shore. And she says, turn here. And we're going. And we went to this airfield in Beverly, Massachusetts, which where she grew up going to watch planes with her brother. And she said, I want to find out if they offer flying lessons. And so we get there, and there's no airport, and there's no office, there's no bulletin board with flyers. And there's one car in the whole parking lot. And she says, oh, maybe this guy will know. And this was like totally the difference between the two of us. Why the fuck would that guy know <laughs> is what's going on in my head. And so she's like, please just let me ask him. And I'm like, Camilla, please just leave the man alone. And so I stay in the car. She goes to find this man and starts talking to him. And I'm just like waiting. And I'm watching like the machinations going on in her mind. And I'm picturing, by the end of the night, we're going to be in this goddamn plane. And so he's pointing and she's talking and all of a sudden they're waving at me to come talk to them. I get out of my car and I go there and he's on the phone and he's like shoving his phone towards me and he says, you tell her how to get here. And I pick up the phone and this woman with a very heavy German accent is trying to figure out how to get where we are. And where we are is right after the point in Massachusetts where 93, 95, and 128 are all the same road. And so she can't figure out how to get there. And so... I'm telling her how to go, and she's getting more and more frustrated with me. I don't know her. I don't know this man. I barely know the directions. My girlfriend had just told me where to turn. And so she hangs up on me. And so now we're standing here with this man. And so in addition to not wanting to be in this moment, I also don't want to be who I am, who is a codependent fuck, who's taking on all of his anxiety of waiting for this woman and so I said is this your wife and he said no it's our first date this is a match.com date I came from Providence Rhode Island I flew up here I'm gonna take her on a date to Newport fly her and fly her back and if she's too late we're not gonna be able to go and so now I own this responsibility and <laughs> My girlfriend is all about getting on his plane. And she's like, well, to kill time, let's go look at your plane. And I'm like, and how do you feel about that? And what are you doing? And then how did you meet? And do you do this often? Fly random women around? And so the time's going on. And he's saying, so if it's too late, do you think she'll feel safe enough to get that I can get in her car and we can go somewhere? I'm like, this lady's about to get on a fucking plane with you. Of course you can go in her car. And he's like, so what's there to eat nearby? And I'm like, hey, we're near Ipswich. There's clam shacks. There's these places. And he's like, no, she's going to come in like a dress and heels. I'm like, how do you know what she's going to wear? And so this is all happening. We're talking, he's teaching my girlfriend how to do things in the plane, and I'm trying to get out of there. And he's saying, how did you two meet? And I'm looking at her like, no, we are not telling this story. And so <laughs> thankfully, we were saved by me noticing now there's finally somebody else in the parking lot. And so maybe it's this lady. But I don't see a lady. What I see is a car. And on the side of the car, I see two legs up in the air being pulled backwards. And so all I can picture is there's this big man holding a woman under her armpits, like pulling her backwards. So we jump off the plane, and we're running to the car, and the car's moving. And so the guy jumps in the car, puts it in park. And from the side of the car, the woman stands up, and she's like fixing her hair which her hair wasn't the problem because she wasn't wearing a dress, she was wearing silk separates. And so her blouse was like pulled up over her bra, her skirt was like tar, road stained into her pantyhose, and she's like fixing her hair. And I'm doing like a mental health check on her, like are you oriented to time, place, and person? Have you had traumatic brain trauma? You know, like are you okay? 
and the guy's getting in the car and they're quickly talking about what they're gonna do and are you gonna, you know, can I go with you? You need to go buy another outfit. And we're looking at this lady, I'm looking at my girlfriend like, fuck you. And so, we're walking, I'm like, please can we go? And we're walking away and he's like, oh, take my card. I'm, so we can go flying together sometime. And she takes it um, and we're walking away and he's saying, but you never told me how you met. And because my time's up, I will tell you what I told him. It's complicated. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Jill Titleman. Jill. I got really tired of dating, and I needed something else, some other way to abuse myself. So I decided to build a house. by myself, my son and I, together. He's helping me from Brooklyn. The house is on the Cape. Um, so things have been going along pretty well. They were for, we, it's been a long project. And Bob and Pete are the builders, and we love Bob and Pete. We love them. We still love them, even after what you're gonna hear. And we always say how much we love them. And so, it, you know, we trust them. You trust them you know that they're gonna get the best deal for you and they're gonna build the best house and they're gonna intuit everything that you want somebody to know about you. Um, and things really have been going well until really pretty much a couple of weeks ago. And um, the first thing that happened was Pete came over, whenever he comes over on a Friday afternoon, he wants money and he wants to tell me bad news. I figured that already because that's when it happens. And, um, so there are allowances, and there, then what happens is they say, this is going to cost you $100, and it's really going to cost 650 but they say it's going to cost 100 and so you believe them. And so he came over with a couple, of, a couple of overages before, and those were understandable. I knew what they were for, and they were because we changed something, and I knew what that was, kind of. I didn't know that it was going to be this amount, and then suddenly another Friday afternoon, another amount. But it was like, okay, we love Bob and Pete, and everything's got to be nice, and I want them to like me, you know? And, I, and that's really the most important thing. And, and somehow, I want to be, because they said when I signed them on, they said, all of our customers become friends. And I wanted to be in that club. Now that I've seen the houses of some of these people, I don't want to be in that club, but, um, or heard stories about them. But, um, so, Th there were these other overages, and that was okay. And then all of a sudden, Pete came over two Fridays ago or three Fridays ago, and it was about the um, first thing. It was about the heating, the, the heating thing, and the heating thing was um, suddenly it was 50% over budget. And he had this thing, and it was a list, three pages of single space, what it was for. And because I had walked through the house, and they said, what do you want? And I went, ah, I want that. I want that. I want this. I want heat. I want, no, the heat. That's the lighting. That'll, the heat, yes, I want it to be warm. And I want, and, and so, and then it was like, well, this is what you picked out, you know? And they never said to me that it was going to cost more to have this than to have this. I mean, it was just, yeah, I want it. So I said, um, well, there must be another way to do this because it's, that's a lot over budget. And he said, my heating person is the best. And this is, if he says this is what it is, this is the way to do it. And I said, well, I need the weekend to think about this. I'm not sure what to do, but I think I'm gonna get another estimate. And he said, we work with our people. We have our people. We have Bob, John for this and Jake for that. And we have, and I said, okay. And so I spent the whole weekend and I was like, I don't want him to not like me, but I can't. It's going to cost too much. So, um, so I, I, you know, so Monday I, I said I made a bunch of calls. I called like what I do in this circumstance. Don't give me your phone number, because I will call you. I will say you're the person I met, and and you said you did. What happened? Did they have more? So I was calling everybody, and everybody agreed with me. You should get another estimate. You can't just so. I said, Pete, I am getting a second estimate. And he said, okay, we're good. Everything's great, great. Got a second estimate. He said, oh, I was gonna call that guy anyway. I know about that guy, I've heard of him. 
and he came in and it was great. It was lower than the estimate, actually. And probably a lousy system, but we're probably gonna do it. So that was great. Then came the electric, and that was another Friday, and he came in, and this and the electrician's already started. He's already done the thing from the street, and the thing is under the road, and 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 the electric came in, it was only 25% over budget. And he came in and he said, I just want to discuss the electric with you, it's over budget. And I said, well, how much? And he said, I don't know. And he, anyway, so I should probably hustle it up. So um, I don't want this to be boring, but, um, but anyway, my son meanwhile is in Brooklyn and he's like, the money's my part of the job. And uh, he's the design guy, you know, and, and he cares about the money, but not as much as I do. And, um, and so um, the electric thing, and so I said, well, Pete, we got to get another estimate. And he said, he said, I work with this electrician. This is my man. He's the best. It's, this is what it has to be. And I said, well, well uh, okay, but we have to change how many lights there are. I just, maybe I'll use candles. I don't know. <laughs> so, um, you know, really, whale oil, I don't know. So um, he said, in my kitchen, he said, I, this is the person I use. And he's already started the job, and he's already pulled the permits. And so I spent the weekend not sleeping. And, and by Monday, Monday morning, we had a meeting on the phone with my son and Pete and I for an hour. And they were going through the electric thing, line by line, and they're trimming it. And I, and I stopped them, and I said, look, I don't care how much you take off this bid. I am getting another electric electric bid. And Pete was completely silent, completely silent. He was like, okay, all right, but let's still work on this, okay. Um, so I called a lot of people and I got some really good names of electricians, I think. And I started calling them and I told them like, well, what do you charge for a can? This guy charges this, this, I'm like, what are you? And I figured out like, are, you know, because Pete said, electricians have messed me up. I have had terrible luck with electricians, uh, you know. So, this is the great part of the story. <laughs> I found my power. I found my power. I was extreme, I mean, I, I worked for Jermaine Greer. I'm a feminist, I'm a strong woman. I've done like stuff. I was so, so intimidated by Pete and my son, who started to side with Pete, he said, you know, you did change your mind. And, you know, Pete and Bob, we like them. And you just want more stuff, and you just want to get it cheap. And, you know, no. And I, and I just, another sleepless night, and I said, I said, this is outrageous. So I got the electricians to come, and then Pete and my son had a conversation on the phone Friday, because Pete said, I don't understand your mother. I don't know what to do. I can't work with her. I don't know what's going on. Everybody hates me right now. But I'm right. <laughs> All right, Kristen Knowles, everybody. In 2011, I went to the internet or to the National Women's uh, Convention, which was in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and I got a scholarship to go there from the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. And the reason that I got the scholarship and why I was doing this work was because. Okay, in 2008, I adopted two children from international source, from Kazakhstan, um, who both have special needs, and we took out a, a home equity loan to do it. So, <laughs> so, so, so there's that. In 2009, I lost my job because of a labor dispute uh, and seniority in a union situation which broke my heart, and in 2010, I became ill. So all of a sudden, I couldn't work anymore, and I always had worked. So I decided to do some volunteer stuff, so I started doing this, this work with the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, which is called WILPF. And from, it's a really unfortunate acronym, and, but it's better than saying the whole name, right? Okay, so anyway, I go to this thing with WILPF, and, um, now, obviously, since I've internationally adopted my children, I, and I have had some travel experience, um, you know, I've got a fair perspective on a lot of third world countries, and, but, okay, so I go to this thing, and one night, there's a film shown, 
and it's called The Whistleblower. Now, I know nothing about this film. I had been to Thailand when I was younger, backpacked around for like a month. Um, you know, I had seen things in the sex trade that I was like, well, I guess that's just what happens over there. And I, that was my viewpoint at that point. So I go to this film and all of a sudden about three quarters of the way through, I have the most profound PTSD reaction around gender violence that I've ever had in my entire life and I have to leave the room. So I'm embarrassed and I get out of the, out of the room where the movie is being shown and I walk into the lobby and there's a woman there and I had met her earlier. Her name was Sha'an and she is from, uh, she's uh, half Native American and half uh, black and so uh, she and I, she, she sees me, she's having the same kind of reaction and she just puts out her arms and I walk up to her and she puts her arms around me and we just rock and she just keeps saying, breathe, breathe. And I was just sobbing and she was sobbing. And after about five minutes, which is a long time, <laughs> really, when, and, um, she pushes me away from her, and she looks me right in the eye, and she says, you, you have to do this work, because I've been trying to do it my whole life, but you they'll listen to. And the enormity of that statement in the fact that I am white and blonde and privileged and that she grew up having been trafficked from a very young age on the reservation to white men who would come and pick them up and use them for sex, having had no choice, but she still felt like she had no voice. And it wasn't like I picked up a white flag or a, you know, a flag at that point and just felt like, I'm going to be this crusader. But after having seen what I saw in that movie and beginning to understand how broad, how widespread, how incredibly, I mean, this thing, these tentacles envelop every single place on the globe, including Cape Cod. As I've learned and learned and learned about all of this, I have learned the nuances of it. I have learned how what doesn't work, what does work, what your your first impression when you meet when you hear a story about some guy who's trafficking girls or um, or some girls that are trafficking themselves, you think to yourself, at least this is the impression that I've gotten from a lot of people that I've spoken about this to. What a skank, stay away from those people. This is the advice that mothers give to their children. Those girls are bad, those guys are trash, just stay away from them. And that, initially I was like, yeah, those people are scumbags. Like, I can't believe that guy in Yarmouth who had those five girls staying in his house. And yes, there's like an embodiment of evil. But now that I've learned so much about all of this and the mentality that goes around it, I think to myself, like, my God, there is so much about gender and those dynamics. There's so much about patriarchy. There's so much about, about capitalism that has allowed us to commodify human beings in the sense that they are dispensable and disposable. And how, as a culture, did we get to this place? And then, when I look at the men, I think of the men who are unattractive or morbidly obese, and I think, my God, they do have drives, and where do they, how do they find their needs met? And then I know there are sex workers that need the income, and they are working in really amazing ways to heal people. It's so incredibly complicated. And I wanna hold all of that. 
I don't want to demonize anyone anymore. I don't want to say that guy's a scumbag. I want to know what is his background. And I want to say that war and poverty are the two main things that cause people to find these alternate means of creating income. And that is the, the journey that I went on. And finally, I'll wrap that up by saying, after having adopted these children, all the time people come up to me and they say, oh my God, that is such a wonderful thing that you did. Wow, you two are saints. And yeah, I will say that the journey has been incredibly difficult. It broke me. I, will, I, I know why mothers leave, okay? It was the hardest thing I've ever done and it's still hard, but the thing about that is that I am a homeowner and I was able to take out a home equity loan to buy these children from a system that although we don't think of it as such, actually is just as uh, driven by capitalism as any other, and, and in, it, it, I thought, I don't say, yes, thank you, I am so wonderful for having adopted these children. I say, I was so lucky because I had the privilege to be able to do that. I, I wanted children, I couldn't have them myself, and I was able to buy them. That is so crazy. And that in and of itself, as extortionist as it becomes on the international level is, is, <laughs> whoops, <laughs> you know, is, is like human trafficking as well, even though it's justified, even though it's legal. Everyone wants a handout. When you add the profit motive to any situation, it becomes extortive, you know? Um, so I am more than thrilled to have my children. They're amazing and incredible, and this whole experience has taught me so, so much. Um, and I still try to do this education around human trafficking, but I could talk for hours and hours because it is so nuanced and so, so complicated. Thank you. Okay. Katie, first up, Katie, who does Improv troupe in Provincetown, here in Provincetown, just so you know. Wicked cool. So I feel like I just want to start by saying I am the woman in the bathroom that just audibly farted. So if you were in there with me and you've been trying to figure it out, that was me, um, just to clear things up. Um, I'm also the one that mentioned about getting arrested. Um, I called the police and got arrested um, in college. So I was living in St. Petersburg, Florida, going to USF, um, which is University of South Florida, and one of my best friends had been living in Germany. We have that German connection. <laughs> she was cooking there, and she came back to live in the United States, so I thought, let's go out on the town. We should go out. We were only 20, though. So we went out uh, to a bar. We walked there because we thought we should be responsible, and we were like, let's leave our phones at home. We just wanted to really reconnect. So we went to a bar, and some guy had ordered us drinks and sent them down the bar, and we were really dumb, and drank them. So something bad happened between then and me waking up in a bush. Uh, before I woke up in that bush, though, I remembered my best friend, who's extremely straight, saying to, she had grabbed me, and she's like, I'm going to fuck the shit out of you tonight. <laughs> Which, I, it should have been a red flag that, like, something was going on. Um, <laughs> because she had never said that to me before. Um, and I remember feeling like, this is gonna be a great night, like whatever's gonna happen. Um, and then I do remember we, we saw that there was a playground and we were like, this, it's on, let's ride some swings. And we climbed, we jumped a fence, so I had a bruised rib from jumping the fence, and I lost my keys in the church playground. Um, 
And she, I don't know where she went, but I woke up at the church playground in a bush thinking, fuck, where's Lena? What are we going to do? It was a couple hours later. So I started walking around town looking for my friend. And I was on my way to my apartment thinking, oh, my God, she probably made it back to the apartment. Um, so I'm looking around, and I find these teenagers. I'm like, can I use your phone? Please let me use your phone. I still felt like I was on some sort of a drug. And they let me use the phone, and I called 911. I'm like, I just, I, what, if something's, what if somebody has her? Like, what if she was kidnapped? So I called 911, and all of a sudden, I can hear Lena's voice in the distance calling my name. So I said, we're all set. I found my friend. And I'm walking towards Lena. Lena had also called the police. And she had found this woman that was like, you've been roofied. She was like screaming it at us <laughs> on the side of the road. We're like, OK. She's like, get the ambulance. You've been roofied. She just kept screaming that at us. <laughs> so the police still show up. They still come. And we're like, we're all set. We found each other. And they were complete assholes. Um, I keep staring at you. I'm really sorry. <laughs> I know. I'm so I feel like I keep looking over and making like awkward eye contact with you. Um, so the police come, they're so rude to us, really unfriendly, and they're like, you need to get into your apartment, but we didn't have the keys. So uh, they, they found out who our landlord was, because it was one of those, I'm still looking at you, I'm so sorry. Um, they, it was one of those places that has, you know, they have a million properties, so they called and the lady couldn't get there soon enough. Um, so they start, They were calling us sluts and saying that we were drunk sluts and blah, blah, blah. So they ended up arresting us. And um, they did a cavity search. They didn't find anything. They literally checked, not the right then and there, but when they took us in, the, a lady checked my butthole for drugs, which was interesting um, <laughs> and horrible. Uh, and then they took us in, and I remember the lady said, I said to the lady there, I was like, what are we getting arrested for? We were so confused. It was horrible. And um, the lady said, it's just uh, disturbing the peace. We were disturbing the peace because we couldn't get into our apartment, which is so stupid. Um, so I said, is that a big deal? And she said, no. So I was like, fuck it. I'm smiling for this mugshot. So I smiled. I look like the Grinch. I had like my chin down. <laughs> And I smiled for the mugshot and spent the night in this cell with my best friend uh, with all these other women that were in there for, like, fucking hurting people and stuff. Um, and my parents came to get us the next morning. My friend's parents were like, you're on your own. So my mom bailed both of us out. And... Um, I remember my mom was like, what? let's get breakfast. And my dad was like, they were in fucking jail. We're not going out for pancakes. We're going home. And they took us. It was Sunday service at the church. And I had to, I, I went into the church to get the keys out of the playground, which is so stupid. Should have just had the keys remade. I went and tried to find the keys. There were, like, kids playing after church, school, or whatever happens at church, and the keys weren't there, um, but the mugshot stayed online. The, in Pinellas County in Florida, they're able to post your mugshot, so it was public info for everybody, which is so stupid, and I was put on a website called Hot or Not, where you could, um, yeah, you could, you could rate the mugshot. I had some killer ratings um and I, a guy actually found me on facebook and sent a message and was like i saw your mugshot you're my woman and it was horrible but that mugshot has lived with me that happened i don't know the year but i was 20 and i'm 30 now so it was online for 10 years and i called in sick with like a headache a few months ago and my husband and i were at home and i, I googled my name and i saw that it was still there. So I went on to the website, and they had just changed a law where if it was expunged, which it was, you could get it removed. So as of like a month ago, I don't have a mugshot online. So that's why I feel comfortable sharing this. You guys can't all like Google it. But it was very complicated. OK. I knew I could get this guy to come up here. Justin Connors, come on up. Hi, guys. So this is a super short story, uh, but 
I'm going to tell it anyways. Um, so a long time ago when I was in high school, uh, I was putting on a movie with a bunch of high school friends called The Crucible. Uh, and it was with five like 17-year-olds. And we were all dressed up. And we like were all witches. And we were all awesome. And we were dressed <laughs> up in dresses. And we thought it was really great. And we uh, went like to the nines. We, we looked great. And we put on an amazing uh, movie. And we were like, oh, we finished filming. This is going to be wonderful. Let's make cookies. Um, <laughs> let's keep the dresses on and make cookies. Like, let's make chocolate chip cookies. Like, this will be great. And we're not that great at making cookies, but we did it anyways. And I was like, okay, like, I think this is the oven. I think this is what we're supposed to do. Uh, and long story short, we uh, created a fire. Um, <laughs> and there was some turkey grease or something in the oven. And a fire started in this, in this oven. And we started freaking out. And we didn't really know what to do. We were like, we got to put the fire out. Like, what are we doing? Like, there's the fires, like, growing. Uh, we, like, open it. It starts, like, like uh, chocolate chips. <laughs> it was like, yeah, chocolate chips and other things. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and we were like, oh, my gosh, this is terrible. Uh, and we, like, couldn't find the fire extinguisher. And uh, we didn't know what to do at all. We just didn't realize the grease fire would just go out. And so I was like, I know what to do. I'll get my neighbor. Like, he knows what to do. He's strong. He's great. And my neighbor is a bodybuilder. And he is, like, a huge bodybuilder. And he's very, very kind. But he's, like, very um, bodybuilder-like. Uh, and... <laughs> And we, I run across the street, and I knock on its door. I'm like, please, like, there's a fire, like, help. Like, I don't realize that I'm in a dress. Um, and, and I'm like, come over, like, quickly. Like, we were baking cookies. There's a fire in the oven. And, like, and, and, he, and he gets there, and there's, like, four 17-year-olds. And we're all just, like, standing there, like, lost. And he has this fire extinguisher. He puts out the fire. We're all like, and then, and then the fire's out. And we are just sort of sitting there, and we're all in dresses. And we kind of realized at that point, like, we're just in dresses. And this big bodybuilder is like, came and saved the day. And we're just kind of like, thank you. Uh -huh. Like, there's the door. Like, and, uh, and ever since then, it's always been kind of complicated, like, looking at him. <laughs> like, kind of just like, yeah. Like, that's that. Yeah. <laughs> Big hand for Janine. Janine! Woo! Oh, it's working. <laughs> um, so this story was inspired by one of our storytellers earlier. I can't see you out here, but, um, um, and it's a short one. And um, so it's 1982, and it's Salamanca, Spain. I'm in college and I'm studying abroad for the semester. And, you know, it was like the first time really being away from home. My college was like two hours away from home, but this is, you know, across an ocean. And, um, you know, and I'm feeling really like independent and I'm like, this is so cool. And, um, you know, I'm, uh, they put us with, they put us with families, you know, and there were like two of us per, per family. And we had, gotten there and I had to go out and get some like toiletries and things and we found this store it was called Simago and it was like the Spanish version of like CVS and we're like oh this is great you know so we go shopping and I'm like determined to find what I need without having to ask because I'm like I, I speak Spanish I can do this and and I'm looking for an astringent you know like for your face and and so I'm looking around the store, and there's this display, and it's a display of these, this bottle with this like liquid in it that looks like astringent, and little cotton balls that come with it, and it's called oleoso. So I think, oh, okay, that must mean oil-free, you know? Great, that's exactly what I need. So I buy it, and you know, in the morning, and my roommate goes off to take her shower. We were allowed to have a shower a day. It was written into our thing because Americans are so shower fanatical, you know. <laughs> um, and, um, and, you know, and the other thing, too, I have to say is so this family was lovely and they took us in and, um, you know, but of course they get paid and 
um, the they have a young boy and a young girl, and they got like so ousted. So she, you know, the, the girl who's like 16 got ousted from her bedroom so that we get the bedroom, and she had to sleep with her, you know. 13-year-old brother, and so she'd constantly kind of like glare at us down the hall, but you know, it was, it was really cool, but um, so, you know, and then I'd take my little cotton ball, and you know, my roommate Karen would go off to the bathroom, and I'd start doing my little face, you know, in the morning, and I'd be like, God, this smells really familiar, I'm like, you know, and I'm like, whoo, that stings, this is strong stuff, I'm like, good, it's doing its, the work, it's drying up that oil, which, you know, so I don't get any, you know, like, because I wanted to look really cool, you know, like, not just some, like, dorky American, you know, and every morning I'm doing this, and my skin's getting red, and I'm like, Jesus, but I keep doing it, and, like, for some reason I didn't connect that my skin that was feeling red and kind of, like, not so good might be related to this. And, and finally, one morning, I'm putting it on, and my roommate comes over, and she goes, oh, my God. And she picks it up and smells it. She goes, why are you putting nail polish remover on your face? So, yeah. I was like, that's what the smell is. <laughs> I knew it was familiar, and, you know, so life abroad as a young person trying to be all independent and everything can be complicated. So. <laughs> okay, welcome to the stage, my friend Deirdre. Woo -hoo 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 -hoo. I was inspired by all the I got arrested stories. <laughs> I was actually going to tell the story of my life, but I switched it to the arrested one. So um, it was July 20th, 1986. I was headed to church. I lived in Santa Fe, and it was the eve of my daughter's third birthday. So. I was, I was in a cult. I survived to tell the story. I won't bore you with that, but so um, that's another night. So I had a, um, a date to meet a friend who was a manager of a gallery on the plaza. And so I was to just drive and wait outside for her and uh, it was a no parking zone, uh, but it was closing time in the gallery. So <clears throat> I parked, I waited for a minute, and I, actually I think I was supposed to go in and, and get her. Well, I went in and she had customers. And I was like, Ugh. So, and she was really working with them. There were maybe three people. So I just was kind of going, uh, we gotta go, we gotta go. And so I said, I'll meet you outside. And I went to my car, and it was a yellow no parking zone. But there were several cars parked, and it was right off of the plaza. I don't know if people know Santa Fe, but um, anyway, um, as I got outside to my car, I see that I had a parking ticket on the windshield. And I was like, oh, damn it. So I took the parking ticket and I saw that the cop was just three cars ahead. So I walked up to him and I said, excuse me, will you take this back? I'm leaving now. <laughs> um, nice try, right? So much to his chagrin, it worked out in my favor. Um, so uh, he was like, he just got all loopy. He was like, um, and he said, yeah, no, and, and I, I can get wicked attitude. I'm so good at it. And I just was like, well, I was just there for a second. He goes, you could have parked in the, in the uh, parking garage down the street, which I think had just opened like the day before. So I didn't even know. Anyway, I wouldn't have done it. But... <laughs> 
nonetheless, um, I got really pissed. And I was like, <laughs> tore it in half. And he goes, you're under arrest. And I was like, what? I mean, I just could not believe that he was saying this to me. And so I was like, what? And I, and I was like shaking. And he, and he just, he, he takes my hand and he like shoves it behind my back. And he starts pushing me down the, um, the sidewalk. And, you know, it was a summer's evening. So there were a lot of tourists around. And um, so I'm, you know, being shoved back towards my, my car. And, and it was getting really intense. It was like a scene out of a bad movie. And, and at this point, it was in no way funny. I was very scared. And he was, he was brutal. He was just a really nasty guy. And so I see all these people just like looking at me, at him, and I'm just, just wanted to melt and hide. And, and then he's getting even more brutal. And he gets me to, the, to my car, and he shoves me up behind my car like really like slams me into the back of the car and he takes my other hand and so both my hands are up behind my back and he slams the cuffs on me and and I was probably crying at this point and I was just like freaking out and all these people across the street were like stopping one by one and there was a bar across the street and people were coming to the door and they're all like watching and then my friend comes out with her three customers and they're like, what is going on? And, and I didn't want to say anything. And, and he's, he's like, she's under arrest for destroying city property. Oh, that's what he said to me. As I ripped the, the ticket and he arrested me, you're under arrest for destroying city property. And so, um, so my friend comes out and she's like, what's going on? My father is a judge. My brother is a lawyer. What's going on? I'm going to call them. And, and so I'm thinking, okay, this could be good, but I don't know. And maybe one of her customers was a lawyer, and, but he was from out of state. And, and it was just, every, it was, everything was building and building and more people were stopping and people were coming over onto my side of the, <laughs> the sidewalk and, and, um, most certainly at this point, I was definitely crying. And, um, oh, I better hurry up. Okay, so, so he calls, the, the cop calls a backup. So this backup guy comes, and this guy comes out of the bar across the street, and the first cop is like, arrest him. So the first cop <laughs> takes the second guy, and he bounces him off the roof of the, the, the hood of, of his car. And, and I was just like, what is going on? And he slams the cuffs on the other guy and he shoves him in the car and he drives away and the second cops, uh, I think there were two cops in the second car, but the, uh, there was another foot cop and he's looking at me and he's like, he's kind of going. And anyway, so they take me, they drive me to the police station. I didn't have a mug shot, but, um, <laughs> but my friend came to, um, she came to get me. And as she's driving me back to town, she said, um, so this guy, you know, came out of the bar and he saw what happened and uh, he wants you to go in and talk to him. So we get back to where her, the gallery was and I go into the bar and the guy that she wanted me to talk to, oh, lucky me, I was a preschool teacher at the time. And his kid was like my favorite kid. And so I knew him as a parent and he was the assistant to the DA in, uh, uh, for um, the city. And so, or however that works. I don't know exactly how it works. But anyway, so I was, he's like, well, what happened? So I was telling him. And, and earlier in the night, I had seen this guy writing on a, a yellow pad. And so anyway, the, the father uh, says, you know, I, because I work for the city, I can't help you, but here's the name of a, the best civil rights lawyer in the state. And so he gives it to me. I, go, I call the guy the next day, and um, he, he answers the phone, and he starts, I said, hello, my name is Deirdre, and blah, 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 he, and he laughs. He goes, oh, I just finished reading your story, because it was like this, it would have been the first, it would have been the cover story, but it was, it only made the second page of the Santa Fe New Mexican. 
And um, so he's laughing. He's like, oh, I just read your story. And I said, I'm wondering if you would uh, represent me. And he said, I'd be more than happy to. So I meet him, and we go into the um, uh, cop station. And as we walk in, you know, I walk in, and I'm just like meek. I'm a mosquito. I'm like, and he's next to me, and the chief goes, oh, hi, Bob. And so I really did have the best civil rights lawyer in the state. And so they take, take me up to the you know, questioning room, take my story. They said, well, several people have already been in here and uh, also given their stories. And so then they tell us the story of the cop and, and it was just from outer space. So anyway, I go to work the next day and my friend is in there and she's like, oh, you need to go talk to the, um, the city manager. So I go in, oh, actually the, the assistant DAA had told me to do that. So I go in to talk to the city manager and he says, oh, well, you know, seven people have already filed official reports with me and to this day I never know, I don't know who any of those people were. Um, and he said, but even though I work for the city of Santa Fe, I'm telling you right now, you need to sue the city, you will win. Because 10 years ago I had a similar situation and I did not sue and I know that I would have won and you will win. So I did, um, I, I sued the city of Santa Fe and, uh, and I won. And I won uh, more than the cop's annual salary. And it never went to trial, never anything like that. And the gallery owners loved me because he harassed them for two years. When they closed, he would, and the cops knew uh, that they had a bad cop on their hand and that's why this guy was a foot cop who could only write tickets. He couldn't even drive a car. Um, and so they were kind of more than happy to get rid of him. But the gallery owners loved me because when they would close and they, they were t taking their um, either artwork or garbage to their cars at the end of the evening, uh, he would come along and ticket them. And so I got rid of them for them. And here I am telling my story. Thank you. It's complicated. So our last brave storyteller in the audience Jean Hedo. So, you know, I hear a lot of people say they came from a big family. And it makes me smile because um, I'm the sixth of 13 children. Now, let me tell you, that's complicated. It, it complicates a lot of things, like, where's my underwear? It's in a bucket with six other people. Some of them are BVDs and some of them aren't. <laughs> or, you know, now let's, let's think about socks. I, I have one older sister who's 10 years older than I am, and she was gone out of the house before I even noticed. <laughs> then I have four older brothers, then me, then two brothers, two sisters, two brothers, and a sister. <laughs> so, you know, oh, you wanna hear their names? Oh, this was a great game. Listen, when I finally came out of the house into the world, people would go, <gasps> and then they'd say, what are their names? It's Becky, Peter, Benny, Danny, Bruce, Jean, Patrick, Mark, Mary, Faith, Paul, John, and Sarah. <laughs> and they all have middle names, and some of them have two middle names, but I won't bore you with that. But really, there is that thing about socks. Remember when everybody wore tube socks? Right, oh, those tube socks, oh, my mother loved those things. <laughs> so you do the laundry, and you have like 47 tube socks. And <laughs> we always bought our Tide in a big box. So the, that became the sock box. So the socks go in the sock box. And the first time somebody does something wrong, your job is to sort the socks. <laughs> now, it all depends on who it is. You know, it might be me, and I might be not happy about it, or it could be my brother who really doesn't want to have to do it. So they just take two socks and roll them up. So you get up in the morning, get out of the sock box, take out a pair of socks, go in the bathroom to get dressed, because nobody ever saw anybody naked. 
Now think about that. I mean, we had bedrooms with four people in one bedroom, but nobody ever, uh, three bathrooms in every house. My father would find a place to put a toilet. I'm telling you, some of them you wouldn't even believe, but there was always three bathrooms and they all had a lock. So you run in there with your clothes and you go to get dressed for school and you pull on your socks. One of them comes up to your ankle, and one of them comes up to your knee. One of them is, you know, because it's this size tube sock, and then there's this size. But there's that whole other thing. Now, you know, right now, everybody's all talking about uh, gender identity and how, what pronoun do I use and what's my sexual orientation. What sexual orientation? When I was growing up, there was nothing but married people and nuns. That was it. <laughs> You know, I never even, saw, I don't think I even saw a single woman my whole life. It was like, and we were in Vermont way, way, way up in Vermont. Once a year, now think about this for a minute. Once a year we went to Burlington. Burlington, Vermont. Now I'm old, so we're talking about Burlington, Vermont in the 60s. Woo. Too much, you couldn't even believe it. But we would go to Burlington once a year. So really, you know, who do I know? I know married people and nuns. Oh, and then there's a few priests, but we didn't have much to do with them because we were girls. And you know, that was not, the boys were the altar boys. So what happens? You know, it's, you get to be in high school and it's time for you to get married. Married? I have no interest. First of all, all my clothes came from my brothers. Because everything in a big family gets passed down, <laughs> right? So you get dressed in the morning, and you, unless you're going to school, because, of course, Catholic school, we all went to Catholic school, and we all had little uniforms. So then you knew what you were supposed to wear. But when the clothes came sliding down, for me, you know, it was my brother's flannel shirts, their wool pants, their tube socks, you know, <laughs> and their sneakers. So here we go. So I get to be uh, a teenager, and now I'm supposed to think about getting married. And now I'm not really interested in that. I don't know why I'm not interested, but I'm not. <laughs> but I do what they tell me. Here's the guy, okay, you're going here to school. He's coming across the street. Take care of you. You get married. Ooh, this is fun. I got married. <laughs> so the first baby, oh, and I'm not even drinking. That's what, that's what thinking about marriage does to me. <laughs> so the... <laughs> So the first baby comes along, you know, whoa, here comes this baby. Oh, look at that. And the doctor says to me, <laughs> and the doctor says, now you need to take birth control pills. I can't take birth control pills. I'm a Catholic. What are you talking about, take birth control pills? If you don't take the birth control pill, you'll be right back here next year. Oh, of course I won't be. Three days before the first kid's first birthday, there I am having the second kid. So I write my mother a letter. That was genius. My mother had 13 children in 20 years. What do you think she's going to say? Here's how not to get pregnant. <laughs> so life rolls along, and I finally get to uh, the middle of my 20s, married to a military man. We're overseas in Turkey. It's time to do um, a big Thanksgiving dinner. I'm, of course, the mom. I'm cooking and doing all this stuff, and this woman walks in, and I took one look at her, and it was like the world tipped over upside down. Wow. So I want to be your best friend. <laughs> and we get to be best friends, and we, we, uh, we have a lot of fun playing basketball and doing things. So, no, no, no. You're jumping to the punchline. Come on now. My life was complicated. So here we are this one day, drinking all afternoon, having a grand old time, and it's time to sober up, time to go to bed. And that particular night, I was going to stay with her. So we go, we're sitting on the floor, we're sitting on the floor eating peanut butter sandwiches and taking aspirin so you don't have a headache in the morning. This is, this is what I learned. So she looks at me and she says, Jean, there's something you need to know. And I said, yeah, what? Now, mind you, I'm 27. And she says, before we get into bed, you need to know I'm a lesbian. I looked this woman straight in the face and I said, that's okay, I'm a Catholic. <laughs> Peeled off my clothes and climbed into bed.
Yep, life is complicated. Thank you for listening to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast. The Mosquito is produced by Vanessa Vardabedian with theme music and editing by Jay Hagenbuckle. Find your next opportunity to join us in person by following us on Facebook and be sure to subscribe to this podcast for more stories. Remember, tell your friends, take a chance, and bite it live.